0: You're listening to Nine Plus, a research podcast from Waterford Institute of Technology. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Nine Plus podcast from WIT. This podcast is where we discuss some of the research activities going on in the Institute, chat to some of the people involved, and get a sense as to what happens in the general world of research. My name is Rob O'Connor. I'm with the Department of Computing and Mathematics, but if you think it's all going to be technology talk, you are mistaken. We'll be aiming to cover as wide an area as possible, taking in as many disciplines as we can. So yes, there'll be science, but there'll also be humanities. There will be technology, but there'll also be agriculture and business. Often the disciplines will meet and intersect, such as when we talk to some of the agri-tech researchers later in the series. Sometimes the research discussed will be abstract, and other times it'll be more applied. I guess the point of this preamble is that one size does not fit all, and we want to reflect that here, by having, hopefully, interesting conversations. You don't need to be a researcher to listen to this podcast. In fact, I kind of hope you're not, I hope that you're somebody who's just curious and wants to learn a bit about the stuff that goes on here at WIT. Perhaps you want to hear the personal stories about what motivates researchers, or maybe, just maybe, you'd be interested in becoming involved yourself. For the first episode, I sat down with the new Head of Research at WIT, Dr Geraldine Kenny to talk about her own research journey. Geraldine joined WIT in 2021. She holds a degree in biotechnology from NUIG and a PhD in immunology from UCD. In America, she worked with the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston before transferring to the Harvard Medical School. She subsequently moved to Switzerland and worked with the Lausanne University Hospital, where she established a research program on endometriosis and endometrial biology. That's a roundabout way of saying that Geraldine is an incredibly accomplished individual and knows what she's talking about. Unlike me, I'll be 100% straight, I haven't got a clue about most of the topics that will be discussed during these podcasts. I'm here to ask the obvious questions and hopefully make the material a little bit more understandable for the average Joe or Josephine soap. In my conversation with Geraldine, we spoke about her own professional journey, and she was quite candid about not always knowing what moves she should make next and how she should progress her own career. We also discussed her work on endometriosis, which I didn't realize was a condition that affects around 10% of the female population, which is a staggering figure. So let's begin. I started the conversation with Geraldine by asking her to describe her current role at WIT.
1: I am Head of Research at WIT. I've been working here since May uh, 2021, so six months now or so. And in this role, I'm responsible for overseeing research at, you might say, a high level, where we talk about compliance and policy and regulations. Are we doing things correctly? Um, but also in the doing of research, we need funding for that. And as we become a technological university, it's very important that we build capacity. We have more people, we have more skills across all areas of research and for that we need money we need research funding so part of that is supporting people to write grants and to bring in more research funding so we have more people doing research. It's also really important that we're doing it correctly, that we're doing it according to ethical frameworks, uh, research integrity and uh, we're thinking of researchers of different types at different career stages. Mm. Actually in my job I recently organised with my colleague Joe the Research Excellence Awards and that was wonderful because as a newcomer to the institution it gave me the opportunity to appreciate the diverse and excellent research we carry out at WIT in very different areas and in very important areas that are relevant to society, to life. OK,
0: I'm going to ask you a very broad question. Now, it's a very low level, but it's equally a very high level question. What is research?
1: To me, research is the investigation and addressing Important questions where we generate new knowledge. Why do I say new knowledge? Well, firstly, the best research is innovative. It's Mm. bringing something new to the field. It's bringing a new angle, but it's also rigorous. It's, It's done correctly. Um, it's it's we have the appropriate controls, the appropriate methodologies, the appropriate ways of asking the question and of analysing any data that we generate. Mm. So to me, research is discovery. It's novelty. It's about uh, a journey. It's about a journey because when we start research, we learn something and we also sometimes have to learn from our mistakes how we can do it better. Mm. What's important is that we do it well, um, we do it as we should, we involve whom we should and um, we respect those with whom we're working, be they stakeholders, end users, patients, and that we also generate something. So typically in research, often a publication is what we call an output. Mm. And it's very important for researchers' careers. That's how that's the currency on which they build their career largely. It's not the only one, but it's important that people know what we do and that we publish it, but also that we communicate about it to the public. CalMAST here at WIT really does a lot of training Mm. and activities in bringing research closer to the public, the taxpayer.
0: So would I be correct in saying a lot of it comes from curiosity? Absolutely. How does that work? Why does this behave this way? How could this be done better? Questions like that. And then it can be in whatever field, doesn't matter whatever field it is. And then the researcher, research team or group, whoever it is, sits down and tries to figure out some way of answering those questions. And then the publication that you mentioned is when they 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 say, well, this is what we found out. And then that is put out there into the world where other researchers or other peers can, can read it or consume it and perhaps even test it out themselves and see, is that consistent? And you know, would that be a fair description? I know it's a very a very broad description.
1: It would be a fair description. Uh, I would just add that... That's a
0: very scientific view now, by yeah, the way. I know that. I know that's it, not the only I, way.
1: I would just add, perhaps, that it's important it's done the right way, involving all the different yes. controls and tests, but also that publications are peer-reviewed. Yes, You can't just put a publication out there. It needs to go through an evaluation process by other people and then that's put out there. They're also talking about that you know who your reviewers are. They were talking about open science a lot more because it's important that that knowledge mm. um, there's a transfer of knowledge to the public and to all the different stakeholders as well. But I, you know that's largely correct Rob I agree mm. with you.
0: So when we're talking about peer review that's a let's say I did some tests right now I'm in computing and I did some networking tests or something like that and I had came up with some sort of a, a finding about 5G networks right whatever it is okay and I published it, but it's peer reviewed and, and people who are knowledgeable in the field would be able to look at my data and say, well, hang on, those figures don't look real. And then when they looked into it, they figure out, actually, he just made up those figures because they would be able to read that. Whereas you who you have a biomedical uh, biotechnology background, you might know what those figures are in the same way that I would know what a biotechnology figures look like or, or what would be valid data or, or not. And that way, then we can ensure that there is a quality control on uh, the work that is published is is that fair enough
1: that's absolutely right rob because there is knowledge in research one becomes a master of a very specific area and as you say 5G telecommunications is totally different to what I might do in biotechnology molecular biology endometriosis research so that's very important and it's true that uh, scientific misconduct is a problem Mm. because if people make up data or take away some data and publish the story that they want to publish that does a disservice to the taxpayer and um, it is true that even some very prominent researchers researchers have, this has been found out about them, mm. someone investigates it and they're forced to retract the publication, yeah. which is obviously something of a scandal for them. It has negative impacts on their career, on that of their institution. Some top institutions uh, in the world have have had that happen to some of their, their scientists, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's some uh, <laughs> open your search engine and you'll find some complete howlers about that one. Um, Geraldine, We might actually just talk about your own story for a moment as to how you ended up here because you're not originally from Waterford. You're originally from Galway. Is that correct?
1: I suppose I'm a citizen of the world, really, Rob. I sometimes (laughs) ask myself, where am I from? I was born in Dublin and I grew up in County Galway. But I spent, after my PhD, so in Dublin, in UCD, I went to Boston, to Harvard Medical School to do my postdoc.
0: Let's go back a little bit further to that. Okay. So let's... Geraldine Kenny is going to college for the first time. What do you do? Right.
1: I did a bachelor's in a BSc in biotechnology at uh, NUI Galway.
0: OK. That was a
1: four year course.
0: OK, so biotechnology. You obviously had, had an interest in science. You had an interest in biology, chemistry, technology. I, I don't really know too much about biotechnology. So if I say something incorrect, please pick me up on it. OK, you go from there and then... So you're coming to the end of your degree, you would you would have done some kind of a, a project or some sort of work in your final year, I'm assuming. Would that be correct?
1: Absolutely. And it was an important part of my journey as a fourth year undergraduate. I actually did a lab project and a literature project and both of them touched on immunology, which is the study of the immune system. And the lab project I was I did actually in the Department of Pharmacology in NUI Galway mm. and I was working on um, an enzyme, which is a bit like a biological scissors, in rat brain. So rats that were stressed, and it was of relevance to a domain called psychoneuroimmunology, which mm. is actually about how cytokines in affect emotions, how some cytokines get across the blood-brain barrier, and I was looking at some enzymes. And I was recently talking with Professor John Nolan about something and he was mentioning some of the same enzymes because they're involved in mopping up free radicals. We, we, by life, we actually produce free mm. radicals as part of our metabolism. And there are these enzymes that uh, break them up, that chop them up. And so they don't do as much damage to our cells and our tissues. And that's part of what I mean about my journey. Um I knew that then I've learned so much more, but yet I can look at a paper or hear an interview today and I'm thinking, ah, that enzyme catalase. Well, the first time I came across that was in my fourth year research project. So for me, that was a pivotal moment. Um, It sparked my interest in research. Um, it sparked my interest in research. I actually went on to work for a while in a company but the questioning, the curiosity was still there and I knew I wasn't entirely fulfilled and so I decided I, I was also mentored by someone. We'll come back to that. Someone advised yep. me when I wasn't sure about what I was going to do. A friend of mine who I still know and I'm friends with, I really appreciated her input to me at the time. Her advice was, you know what? You're you're bright. You, you have a questioning mind. Consider research, and so I applied for a few PhDs, and then I went on to do my PhD at UCD Dublin.
0: Okay, and what did you do there? So, so a PhD is a a doctorate.
1: A doctorate, yeah. basically.
0: So that's where you were going to be a researcher full time, working towards a doctorate qualification. That's that, right. And what were you what what were you doing there?
1: Well, uh, my project was funded by the Health Research Board at the time. It's one okay. of our Irish funding bodies. So the professor uh, had funding and so, I so was paid just, by that. So I'll just
0: qualify you there for a second, just because I think this is important, particularly if somebody who's not Absolutely. familiar with research. When you're saying it's funded, you got paid to do this. Precisely, yeah. I did. So um, it's not like you were an undergraduate student and you were working part time in, you know, SPAR or something like that. Uh, or maybe you were, I don't know. But, but you know, but, but you were paid and your fees were paid and there might have been a budget for some travel or for equipment and maybe other materials that you might have needed for your research. Would that
1: be correct? That's right. So... A funded project is where a student is either paid by a project that has been awarded to their supervisor, who's their mentor, who trains them, who's responsible for overseeing. And typically nowadays in a structured PhD, you have maybe three supervisors and that's good. It's good because you have a diverse uh, group of people feeding into your development, your training and your research path and development. In this case, it paid. So either a research project or a scholarship. Scholarships are competitive, but they all pay your salary. They pay the fees for you to do the PhD, which is a certain amount that has to be paid to the university or IOT or to you every year and then also consumables which, you know, pipettes or plastics or antibodies or chemicals mm. that, you know, because it costs money and that's how it works. So I was paid to do this job and I was working full time. I'm aware that some people do a PhD part time while they're also working. Um, in the lab sciences, uh, I would have found that challenging personally mm. because you have to do all the work in the lab, you have to analyse it you then have to write up your papers and your thesis. But I was working full time. Yeah, it was great at UCD.
0: Okay, so sorry now to interrupt you. I interrupted your flow about describing your PhD work, but I just wanted to get that in there about the funding just to qualify what that was. So so what did you do then in your PhD work?
1: My PhD was basically about looking at the immune function and molecules made by epithelial cells and intestinal tissue. So if you think any mucosal surface is in contact with the outside world, the mm. mouth, the intestine, the lungs, uh, the female reproductive tract, they're all what we call fe- uh, mucosal surfaces Surfaces, and they're very interesting environments because the boundary, the external world where we have bacteria, viruses, things that can cause us harm or we can have a wound where that surface is broken and then the tissue underneath. So if you consider that the uh, Intestine is like a pipe. There is a single cell of layers that line that pipe along the length of the intestine, which is co- which are called epithelial cells, and they're quite cool cells. They they're sort of cuboid in places, they're flatter in other places, but they're an immune cell in their own type. And I was looking at some molecules that they make, which increase inflammation. Mm. Which, which drive it up. And others, very interestingly, that dampen or decrease inflammation. And I was also getting tissue uh, that was taken with consent from patients and looking at some the production of some of the same molecules.
0: OK, and then from there, when you finished your PhD, what did you do next?
1: Well, during my PhD, I got the opportunity to go to Boston to a lab, we had a connection. And Mm. this is another thing important in research. Research is an international endeavour. It involves collaboration. It involves mobility. Very important to see what's done elsewhere. So I was very fortunate in that I got to go abroad um, to a lab in Boston where I learnt a lot. I stayed there for six months. I learned so much. And I got a paper out of that. um, A good publication on something quite interesting. And um, worked really hard. But the professor there in Boston offered me a postdoc. Mm. And uh, so I went back. I finished my PhD. I wrote up my thesis. I did my viva, and then I, what I had started my postdoc before my viva. So the viva is when a student defends their thesis to a panel. There must be an external examiner there mm. who's an expert in the field, and basically they ask you various questions about your thesis to make sure you did the work. It's novel. It was correctly done, uh, with the rigor and the controls needed, and how you might do things differently. They assess, you know, your creativity as well around that, but your expertise. And then you 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 get your PhD in the, the ceremony where it's conferred was usually uh, is usually later after that. So basically, um, I had started my postdoc before that, Fiva, mm. in Boston. And there I was working on not the same thing, but a continuation. I was still on my path. Um, I was working on antimicrobial peptides and a protein. And basically, what is an antimicrobial molecule? It's something that punches a hole maybe in the outer part of a bacterium. We know a lot less about viruses, as the Mm. pandemic has shown us. We know a lot more about antibiotics, even though we really need more novel and effective antibiotics, because bacteria are finding out how to evade them all the time. And so there, it's a protein or a peptide that's made in the body, including by epithelial cells, but also by blood cells, that punches a hole typically in a bacterium Uh, That's one main way it does it and it kills the bacterium. So they're antimicrobial peptides. And I was looking at how they're made by epithelial cells, the molecular biology behind that, how, you know, what what makes it so that the protein is made, the antimicrobial protein or peptide and its importance in um, inflammatory bowel disease. That's a mucosal intestinal disease Mm. that actually is quite debilitating for people.
0: Now later on, and you've mentioned it already about endometriosis. Yes. But this is where you have done the bulk of your work, or I think you have anyway. What could could you maybe describe what is endometriosis first? And then we'll talk about the importance of it.
1: Sure. Well, firstly, when during my postdoc I started getting interested in the female reproductive tract. Again, I changed, and that's interesting in science, also a little risky, but I changed mucosal surface from the intestine to the female reproductive tract. And I have to say, it's it's extremely interesting. I, I, I don't regret that at all because it's a fascinating uh, area. So then I was looking at antimicrobial peptides there and then... In 2008 or so, I learnt about endometriosis for the first time from a colleague who was a clinician. Mm. And uh, I hadn't heard about it prior to that, even though it's very common. It's actually a disease uh, of the womb and surrounding area and what we call the abdomen. Um, And it's basically when, and it affects up to 10% of women of reproductive age, so they estimate that the numbers of women that are, have endometriosis, it might be up to 176 million women worldwide. And it's a major cause in those women of pain, uh, decreased life quality, um, pain during sexual intercourse and infertility. Hmm. So these women suffer quite a lot. And so uh, I heard about it and I thought, wow, you know, we should investigate that. There aren't any good medications and the, and the good treatment is, drug treatment has a lot of side effects. But the problem is it's it's a little bit, so it's a tiny bit like cancer in that it involves hormones, it involves inflammation, but it doesn't kill you. Mm. Um, but it comes back and it comes back. So what happens is, um, and this is relevant to women's health and women's lives. So during uh, menstruation, the inner lining remember I told you about that cell lining inside the intestine it's it's similar enough within the womb the uterus so there it's epithelial cells and maybe cells around them are are some stromal cells but they're shed every month during the reproductive years of a woman during menstruation where they're you know, it breaks down and they pass out of the body. That's menstruation. The problem, and that's normal, it's perfectly normal when pregnancy doesn't occur. That happens on a monthly basis Mm. uh, during the reproductive years of any woman. That's healthy, it's normal. And so what happens in endometriosis is that effluent, so to speak, the cells, etc., it goes against gravity. It goes up and out of the fallopian tubes and into the abdomen. And it can also go elsewhere. And what happens is those cells stick And they form lesions and they grow Mm. in other parts of the body. They can attach to the intestine, the bladder. They can invade, a bit like a cancer tumour. And even though endometriosis isn't seen as associated with the same mortality, the the function of the intestine can be compromised. The function of the bladder can be compromised. And sometimes women don't have any symptoms. Mm. They don't know. And because the diagnosis is a bit complex. Sometimes they have symptoms and they don't know it for years. The average delay to a person having first symptoms and diagnosis can be as many as nine years. Yes. So we don't talk enough about endometriosis because it can happen during the teenage years, but sometimes... Women are suffering and suffering, and the surgery. The, how do you remove these lesions? So these cells have stuck to various areas. They've tra- they've travelled elsewhere. They're they're invading. They're kind of invading into another tissue. They're growing, and they grow under the influence of estrogens, uh, female hormones, and immune inflammatory molecules as well. So here, the immune and the endocrine, so the immune system and the hormonal system, work in tandem. Mm. Um, And so basically, the only way to get rid of the lesions is to undergo surgery. But the problem there is, is that it's invasive and that the lesions, the disease comes back, it recurs. So a woman, I know some patients who've had 10 surgeries and unfortunately, you know, they've had time off work. They suffered a lot. They might take a long time to find a good surgeon because treating this is very complex. Uh, Surgeons need to be highly skilled. And so... um, you know, it takes maybe years and it comes back. So you can imagine that it's quite a problem for these women.
0: And what I know about endometriosis, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know about it until a number of years ago when, say, me and my friends and pe- people I know started getting into kind of uh, family age, if you know what I mean, we started having our own families. And I wasn't aware of it, but probably maybe because I'm a man, whatever. I don't know. And I'm probably ignorant about these things. But I very quickly realised how common it is. So you say 10%. That's quite a high figure. And it's, as you mentioned, I know people who suffer from endometriosis and they didn't know until they got to the stage where they were either trying to get pregnant or, or, or were experiencing fertility issues and, right. and pregnancy issues. Right. And because it, it, I, when I say it's a low level illness, I don't mean that in terms of a value judgment. But what I mean is that, it, it as you said, it's not life threatening. It is life affecting. But, so. but you can function and that's maybe where it's in a difficult position is that you know you know and but but it, but, but obviously it becomes it becomes very very uh, very very important as it goes on then and really can affect quality of life
1: i mean it's funny when you talk about function. so there are maybe two broad types of patients with endometriosis the first yes. have very painful periods uh they have pain at various times and they have a manifestation they have a symptom and sometimes when pain is chronic, people don't see you walking around with broken arm. They don't don't see the effects of that, for example. So they perhaps underestimate the impact on life quality. The second type of person is a person who doesn't know they have endometriosis, but when they try, as you said, to have a baby, they realise, oh, there are infertility issues. They do an invasive uh, visualisation because that's the only way you can see these lesions, these Mm. cells and tissue that stick uh, to other um, places where they shouldn't. And the only way to see those is by doing an invasive technique. So, you know, doctors won't just prescribe that off the bat. It can take a long time. So mm. then or others have a surgery for another reason in that area of the body around the abdomen. And they say, oh, they, they notice the lesions there. So it's actually yeah. by chance. But it is true that in terms of function, um, if a person can't have a baby, that essential right and function is, is compromised. Yes. Um, but people don't see that and yes. maybe they don't realise yeah, How much the person's going through.
0: You're 100% correct. And I and when I was saying there, I, I, I hadn't gathered my thoughts correctly. I don't mean to diminish in any way that it's not serious or anything like that. But what I mean, I, when you said if somebody has a broken arm, you can see that. If somebody has a cut in their head, you can physically see that. You can't see this. And also you can't see the effect that it has. I would say behind closed doors. But if you know what I mean, people generally don't talk about their own reproductive health you know in the way that you might talk about oh i, I cut my arm or i fell running or something like that uh, so and i know i know it affects a huge amount of people in a very profound way and very and it can make a lot of people's life very very difficult so you were working on treatments then for endometriosis or trying to learn more about the condition is that correct
1: yes both actually firstly we were learning more about the condition because we were looking at the lesions and in the serum, for example, and we were quantifying or measuring certain molecules. And I had always, um, so we were understanding a bit more about the pathology. That is, the pathology is what contributes to the development of a disease. Hmm. And that was quite well known. But we wanted to look at some molecules that might be important and one of them was uh, a molecule made by the epithelial cells, very specifically, because they're a minority of cells in the in the lesion, um, in a manner analogous to. A cancer tumour, the most cells in there will probably be stromal cells, some epithelial, some immune cells. It's a bit similar in a lesion. Mm. But um, we looked at that and at the same time we were looking at a molecule that we hoped one day might be able to treat the disease called lipoxin A4 or an analogue. This is a fat protein, a lipid that is anti-inflammatory. But by chance we had discovered that it actually acted like a weak estrogen So what happened was when we put it together with estrogen. um, So if you imagine that the hormone is a key and Mm. the receptor to which it binds to exert its function to have an effect is a lock. The hormone is the key. The receptor is the lock. And the thing is, you've you've maybe one lock, but you've two keys because we had lipoxin A4, lipoxin and the estrogen and lipoxin was competing with the estrogen to bind to the lock okay only one thing can get in the keyhole it's Mm. a very simplistic analogy but we found that in cells we looked at this marker it's increased in endometriosis but when we put the um, when we added the lipoxin in to the endometriosis model in cells and in a mouse, in a mouse model of Mm. the disease, we saw that there was a a diminishment of this molecule and other molecules involved in um, the stickiness of the cells that they would proliferate and those that cause inflammation. Mm. So, it was a potential treatment, but uh, it's very short-lived so it breaks up quickly in the body and that would have meant more research. So that was basically what the research was about. We were looking at samples from patients, we are looking at a cell line that we grew in the lab and and also we had developed a mouse model of endometriosis.
0: And I suppose that's that's an important qualification when it comes to research. It's not a case of, oh, we found that now, job done and we'll move on to the next problem. It's all, it's a process. It's all incremental because I'm sure, like you, you mentioned, it, it was it's, it's not a solution, but it, it helps. And I'm sure you and other people around the world have taken that work and developed on it and developed on it and will develop on it.
1: I would, it has been developed on a little. I would have hoped it would have been more developed. OK. Um, and it's one of, one thing I would love to be a part of because novel therapies and better therapies are more effective with less side effects are really needed. Mm. But you're right. Research by the virtue of the fact that it needs to be done rigorously and correctly. Yes. Can be slow. And it depends on the domain. It would be faster in an IT-related discipline probably than in the biological sciences. Mm. In the biological sciences you'll have cells, samples from humans mm. obtained correctly with, ethical, with consent of the patient of course and also animal models. But you need to reproduce things. Mm. Other people need to reproduce things and that's why when we talk before about a publication that's peer-reviewed, ideally when you have your method section, your methodology in your publication, that should be sufficiently detailed so that it can be reproduced by um, another group. Group, which is important, um, because if we don't have another backup of that, how can we ever say we'll then go to clinical trials and test it in humans? Mm. It simply wouldn't be safe. So it's very true that research is incremental by its nature. It has to be, it should be um, in order to protect the end user. But it's also, you know, it's it's rigorous. So you're right there.
0: You mentioned a mentor and you mentioned somebody who had a, a positive influence on your career. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that person? And, and and what happened?
1: Well, I met that person during a summer project and this person encouraged me at a time when I wasn't sure where I was going to go or I wasn't sure, is this for me? Um, can I do this? You know, do I have the ability... Uh, And yet I had a lot of curiosity and that Mm. person saw that because my fourth year project had sparked that curiosity, had sparked that interest in research and the questioning and the pathways and how things work and what happens after that. And, you know, how can you best do that? So it was great. I appreciated that person because they encouraged me to look for a PhD and I did. And then I started a PhD programme the following September and that, that was very important for me. I would advise any student considering research to find, above all, someone... To whom they can ask questions, a mentor in all career paths, reg- mm. research regardless, is very important. Because
0: as I hear you speak, you're, you're clearly very, very knowledgeable about your subject area. You, you know an awful lot about it. You, you have great insight into it. But I'm sure if you were speaking to your, your undergraduate self... Your undergraduate self wouldn't have had that knowledge. It's not like you came fully formed into the world. It is a development process. you Completely know. So, so it's not that you have to know. You don't have to know all the answers now. So the reason I'm saying that somebody could be listening to this who maybe an undergraduate may not be a student at all, maybe doing something else thinking I couldn't get ever, ever into research because I'm interested in biotechnology or immunology. Sure, I don't know anything about that or I don't know anything about IT or, or it could be a humanities discipline. It could be anything at all. You don't have to have all the answers now. That's the point, well, is that you don't have the answers.
1: That's the point. If we knew everything, why do research? Exactly. It's, it's a journey of discovery and the generation of new knowledge that's useful uh, for society in various domains. So my undergrad self, you know, it was this fourth year research project that was a pivotal moment. But we learn and we develop all the time. Right now I'm reading a book that's very interesting, but it's not a book that I would have appreciated as a PhD student because it's much broader and wider. And as we as we gain more experience or as we, you know, move away from research a little bit, in any case, our our perspective broadens. And um, in a sense, uh, one is moving away from a single discipline. In my last job, I was reviewing grants for not just immunology, biomedical sciences that I would have only done in a very specific field as a researcher, as an evaluator. But I was giving a technical review to projects in the social sciences and humanities as well. And that was very enriching. So Mm. what I mean by I'm on a journey, I'm so different now from who I was at undergraduate. It's, you know... Everyone's on a journey and it's important to ask questions. And I would encourage, you know, a fourth year doing a fourth year project now to consider a career in research. There are others, as I said, who are working, who are doing research part time, but there are various options out there. Keep asking questions. Stay curious.
0: Would you say that's the key skill of a good researcher being curious?
1: It's a key skill, but it's true that nowadays we need to be rigorous. So we need to frame our questions to ask the right ones and to go about answering them in in the right way Mm. in order to have high quality data that helps, that really answers the question in the best way later. Um, And I would say that perseverance (laughs) And resilience is very important because, you know, you might be working on a new technique, you have to optimise it, you know, you have to do it again, it can be frustrating. It's not easy, I would say, it's very rewarding. But it's important to recognise that it takes hard work and perseverance and it's not easy. You won't, You'll even applying for grant funding, we talked about funding for research earlier and that's a key role of ours in the research support unit and it's vital for everyone, people and institutions. But people often have to resubmit a grant. They don't get it the first time. Mm. They have to go back. They have to improve it, do it better, make improvements and, and resubmit and get it. And sometimes they do that a few times. It's the same with experiments.
0: Yeah, there's my, my dad, who doesn't have any sort of an academic background at all, but he's got a great phrase that as I get older, I realise just how, quiet is it, how quite wise it is. And it's if it was easy, everyone would do it. Exactly. So Geraldine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for speaking with us today. If somebody wanted to find out more about you and the role that you uh, your current role as head of research in WIT, where should they go? What should they do?
1: Well, about me, I have a LinkedIn profile. So, you know, it's professional networking that shows my professional career path. There is a website for all the staff in the RIGS, the Research, Innovation and Graduate Studies office. Um, I'm also involved with graduate studies and my profile is there. Um, the research support unit also has a very comprehensive uh, website. So there's a section about postgraduates. there's a section about funded research projects, um, scholarships. You can also contact the research office for further information if you wish. The email address is research at wit.ie and we'd be glad to help you.
0: Geraldine Kenny, thank you so much for speaking to us today as part of the uh, Nine Plus podcast and hopefully it will be the first of many appearances.
1: Thank you very much, Rob. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening all the way to the end of this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, we have lots of information published on WIT.ie. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at 9 plus podcast. That's digit 9, P-L-U-S, podcast on Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a nice review on your preferred podcast listening platform. Thank you.